Good morning. <clears throat> I, uh, I, I don't quite know what's going to happen this morning. Um, I've been trying to get my voice to come back for a week now, and it is not doing that. Uh, <clears throat> which is a problem when you're a professional talker. Um, I've, I've tried, uh, I've canceled classes a couple times this week and it didn't really help. Um, what's complicating things is uh, I'm watching three of our four kids while my wife is out of town and it turns out my go-to trick in the bag as a father is to yell, um, to raise my voice, to get to get attention, and it's just not there. And uh, when you want when you want them to be focused, a three-year-old cannot focus. And when they are focused on what they want to focus on, you cannot break their attention. So Valor will be across the room doing any number of things that he's just not supposed to do. And I'm standing across the room like, <laughs> just smacking the wall, <laughs> clapping my hands and just, my voice is not getting better is what I'm trying to tell you. He's not helping me. <clears throat> if I'm honest, um, it's been it's been quite scary because I realize that I'm not good at anything else in the world, <laughs> and if I can't talk, you know, what good is a pastor who can't talk or a professor who can't talk? The answer is not much, and. Um, I feel great physically, but this thing won't work. And um, I met, I, I meet uh, once a month with a, a spiritual director, just somebody to sit with and ask me what God is doing in my life. And I was missing my voice. And um, he said, you know, maybe. I'm not saying that God did this to you, but maybe God is doing something with this in your life. And I said, well, whatever it is, I don't want him to do that thing. It's scary when the thing that you use to identify yourself gets taken away. And um, I didn't even realize how much I identified myself by the way I talk. I wish I could tell you that this story ends with uh, me figuring out that how to be a gracious and kind father and sweet moment with Jesus, but really I just realized I'm just a terrible person <laughs> that is desperately in need of grace, which is nice because we're in 1 Samuel 12. And there's a good deal of that on offer. So you can turn there if you don't have a Bible. 
We'll have it up behind me. Before we read this, I just want to pray. Um, you know, on Wednesday, on Valentine's Day, uh, 17 children lost their lives again. Um, and the, these, these incidents pile up so much that it's, uh, it's tempting to just let your heart grow hard because, I mean, let's be honest, aren't we just going to sit here and wait for the next one to come? That's where we are at this point. And um, it's easy to miss the fact that these are, these are kids that literally just had their life torn apart and parents lost children and brothers lost siblings. and It's a horrible, horrible mess. And uh, it is a biblical thing to say the world should not be this way. Psalms of Lament are um, a good portion of the book of Psalms. And if you just pull out some of these lines, it's, it almost feels scary or risky at the tone that they take. But expressions of lament are actually incredibly faithful because they don't stand and accuse God. They stand up and say, I know you. This doesn't fit who you are. Why are things like this? Only you can make things right. Now, that doesn't excuse us from responsibility and accountability. But it is a good thing for the people of God to sort of rend their hearts and say, the world is not as it should be. Won't you come and set it right? So I just want to pray for us now and pray for these families in Florida. Pray um, for the wisdom and justice of God, both for this person who's done this um, and for us moving forward. How, how do we live in a wise and just society? Those are real questions that we have to, to answer. So would you pray with me? Gracious God, we come and ask that you would teach us to mourn. We pray, God, that our hearts would be soft, that we would not grow callous to the shedding of blood. that we would not give ourselves over to the logic of this world. We ask instead that your kingdom would come. Father, we ask that you'd come and heal the broken hearts of people who have lost kids. 
And Father, we pray that you would fill us, your people, with holy anger. Anger what is, at what is evil. We pray, God, that you would help us to act wisely and justly. We pray, God, that all of us would live in cities that have schools where parents do not need to be afraid. We ask, God, that you would come and you would set things right. Father, let this morning be part of our world being set, be set right. Set our hearts right under your gospel that we might more faithfully follow you all the days of our life. We trust you for this, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. First Samuel 12. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you've said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you and I am old and gray. Behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a, a bribe to blind my eyes with? Testify against me, and I'll restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or depressed or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and is anointed as witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. I'm going to save myself some trouble and summarize this next section. Samuel then asked the people to witness against God. What has God done for Israel? And the people are reminded that all the times that Israel has been in need, God has been faithful and sent judges and he sent prophets and he's delivered them. I'm going to skip down here to verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. You shall know and see that your wickedness is great, that you have done it out of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord. And the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. 
Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You've done all this evil. Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it, is, it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord. Serve him faithfully with all your hearts. Consider what great things he's done for you. If you still do wickedly, you should be swept away, both you and your king. Prophets are not primarily future tellers. We confuse that. We make the mistake of thinking that prophets come to tell what's ahead. Biblical prophets more come to tell the people the state of things as they really are. They are covenant litigators. They are the lawyers of God. They come to Israel to to remind them of the law that they are bound to, to tell them how they have broken it, and what then is the punishment laid out before them. Here in this passage, we see Samuel being this lawyer and enacting three trials. One, he puts himself on trial. And he asks them, what am I guilty of? What have I taken from you? And their answer is, you're guilty of nothing. You've done nothing for yourself. And then he puts God on the trial. What has the Lord done for you? And he lays out the case for Israel. The Lord has done nothing but been faithful. The Lord has delivered Israel time and again. And then there is one trial left. And it is the people of Israel who are on trial. And Israel hears the case laid out against them. You have done evil and asking for a king. And before they can give the verdict, Samuel decides that they need further evidence. And it's the the harvest season. If you don't know, harvest is not the time that you need rain. Harvest is when you need it to be dry. Because if you're going to store crops, they need to dry out. If they're wet, they will mold They will heat from the moisture and the decomposing. Things can set on fire because of the heat of decomposing wet crops. And Samuel says, the Lord will send the thunder and the rain to stand witness against you. So it is as if the law and the earth itself bears witness against Israel and the people stand condemned and they say we have done evil Israel's crime as we've talked about before is not just in the request for a king it's that they have sought to be like other nations Samuel lays out all the times when God has been their defender when God has been their king 
and this moment in their history when this other power is arrayed against them, they forget all of it. And they say, let us be like other nations that we might have a defender. Would you help us to have someone that we can see, that we can touch, that would be like everybody else? Let us have a king. And that is what is evil. And Samuel now sees the people recognizing that what they've done is evil. And Israel has kind of been here before. They've picked a course of action and then immediately recognized this was a bad decision. It happens in the book of Numbers. Where they send in uh, spies and they bring the spies back and they listen to 10 of the 12 spies saying, we can't do this, we can't take the land. And God says, you're going to be judged for this. And then the people say, you know what? Take it back. Take it back. We can do it. We can take the land. Let's just go ahead and take the land. And it's too late. They go in. They try to take it. And God lets them be slaughtered. And the whole generation dies in the wilderness. And here Israel is again, recognizing that their course of action, the way that they've chosen, is not good. And they're down this road things have started to turn. And here is this king standing next to Samuel, the beginning of a monarchy that will not be a blessing to Israel, will often be a curse. So they asked Samuel, please, would you be merciful on us? Would you pray for us? And Samuel says, of course. How could I not pray for you, my people? Of course, pray that God would do good to you. And he, he lays out the stipulations of the law. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, there's an extended few chapters. If Israel will obey God, they will be blessed far and above everybody else. But if they disobey, they will be cursed. And ultimately, they will be chased out of the land. And Samuel tells them, follow God and be blessed. Do not disobey God. Because if you do, you will be swept away. In this restating of this Deuteronomic promise, is kind of hanging in the air as we move forward in First and Second Samuel and indeed all the way through the books of history because they will be swept away. This is the way of things for Israel. They choose again and again and again to turn away from the God who faithfully remembers the covenant. <clears throat> we, we are also covenant forgetters, are we not? I know that I often run to times in my life, say, I don't know, the past 72 hours, where I 
I run into some sort of tragedy, big or small, in my life, and I'm overwhelmed with the immensity, the nearness of this invading king. And the only things that seem real in that moment are the tragedy that's in my life and me. And my temptation then is just to figure out how to handle this all on my own. And if I'm going to think about God, it's to lob questions at him like, why have you done this to me? Where are you? But of course, if my memory is functioning correctly, and you look backwards down my timeline with God, the evidence weighs pretty strongly in favor of God. That he is faithful to me. He is faithful to my family. He is faithful to his people. And usually it's my wife who's sort of snapping me out of it and helping me to remember. But we are habitually and chronically short-sighted forgetful people and we tend to think God is like us that he himself forgets his covenant that he forgets his people but Samuel's message to Israel is very clear God is not like you and what he says at the end of this chapter 12 is not a conditional statement there are conditional statements here but unconditionally he says God will fulfill his covenant because it was his decision to make a people for himself. God will remember his covenant. And the same thing that Israel hears is something that we need to hear as well. God will be faithful as he has always been faithful. I don't know what that faithfulness will look like in whatever thing, whatever king is standing on your borders. You likely won't know what it looks like either until it's well over. The scripture calls us again and again, this is one of the functions of Israel's history, it's to be a remembering people and remember rightly the nature of God. But what 1 Samuel 12 also does is, is it exposes the nature of us as forgetters, as fickle and unfaithful people. We too are, are left at the foot of the covenant litigator, pleading, please have mercy on us and pray for us. It, it may be difficult. It's, in some ways, it may feel more difficult because there is no beardy prophet judge guy standing in front of us. We can say like, yo, bro, Samuel, can you pray? And I mean, I'm not going to fill that role in your life. Look at me. And Israel, too, has Samuel. But Samuel 
does eventually stop praying when he dies. Samuel is a, is a good and faithful, I'm sure, intercessor. But Samuel dies like all other people do. And who then takes Samuel's place in Israel? The priesthood, maybe. The priests have a spotty record. But we, like Israel, are in great need that someone who knows the law might plead for the mercy of God. Jesus comes into the story and he similarly inhabits this prophetic role. You can't read the Sermon on the Mount without being subjected to the prophetic incision of the covenant litigator in chief. You think you are righteous. Have you angered? Have you lusted? You're a murderer and an adulterer. You have sworn oaths that you had no business swearing. The kingdom of God is for people who are not murderers and not adulterers, not false and fickle. And Jesus is the clearest prophet telling people the clear nature of the truth. So we are exposed before him, unworthy, unfaithful forgetters. But Samuel is also for us a dim, dim picture of what Jesus does for us, not just as covenant litigator, but as our forever true and perfect priest. The role of mediation between God and man is meant to be taken up by the priests. And the writer of Hebrews will say that Jesus becomes our great high priest because Jesus is the only high priest who has not been subjected to the natural term limits of life and death. But Jesus is himself the priest who has entered into the death of his people and trampled upon it. So the covenant litigator who knows us well is yet always the one who pleads for mercy on our behalf. And Jesus is better than Samuel, not just because he's a better litigator, he's a better intercessor, because Jesus can present himself as the king that Israel rejected, but would not accept their rejection. Samuel promises God will establish his covenant people. He will establish his covenant people. And Jesus rides into the story as the all-conquering king who says the kingdom is here, it is coming, it will be established, and he throws his stake in the ground. Jesus is the perfect prophet. He is the perfect priest. He is our perfect king. 
the words of 1 Samuel 12 at the end, they just kind of hang, hang in the air for the rest of the books of history. If you disobey, you will be swept away. But Jesus, the great prophet, priest, and king, forever answers this threat for us, a forgetful people. And instead of the thundering of the earth ringing in our ears and convicting us of our deep, deep guilt, the earth thunders and the wrath of God reigns on Jesus on the cross. So there is no more threat, no more question hanging in the air. It has been forever sealed and completed. And his own story, his own offices that he rightly and fully embodies for us, his people. 1 Samuel 12 ends with a note of questioning that the Gospels answer. You should yet be swept away by the wrath of God. You and I who turn away, who forget, who despise and question God, we should be swept away. But yet the great mercy of God runs like a tidal wave to secure His people who secures me and you. If you are here this morning Jesus stands before you. You can probably list any number of ways that you have forgotten, forgotten God. Circumstances in your life which I'm sure are real and scary and some circumstances in your life that are, if you're honest, trivial and ridiculous. You should take comfort. You are not alone. And if you look at yourself and are overwhelmed by your unfaithfulness, you should know that God has always made his covenant with people like you and me. Your unfaithfulness, your sin, is real and terrible and stupid. But God is enormously patient and has decided to outweigh all of us and to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. If your unfaithfulness has swept you out to sea, you are not yet too far. And if you are here this morning and you know that your memory is faltered, we will come to this table and we will take and we will eat and we will drink and we will remember. God grants us this gift to his people that we might remember. It is his covenant remembrance that can even make us fickle forgetters. Remember who he is and who he's made us to be. God has for us great mercy. But yet, this Samuel's speech still hangs out there. If you want to keep persisting in doing your own thing, if you want to keep turning away, things 
will not go well for you. Because you are not living in the world the way it was meant to be lived in. So of course things will not go well for you. What God wants is for you to be home with Him, for good to be done to you, for you to be seated at His table, secure. Do not turn aside. No matter how far down the road that you think you are, do not say, ah, I'm in it now. Might as well just keep going. If all you can do is collapse to the ground and say, I don't even know how to get home anymore, you are home. Leave aside all your forgetting. Leave aside all your other means of dealing with the tragedies big and small in your life and let God sweep you home and shower his mercy on you now and forever as surely he intends to do. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you as you are so faithful and kind to your people. I thank you, God, that though we stand guilty at the trial, we have for us, on our behalf, in our stead, a great prophet, priest, and king. We have need of your ministry, O oh God. Now and forever, we will never leave it behind. Father, I pray that we would have our eyes opened, that we would see you. I pray, God, that you would help us to remember who you are and who you made us to be. Lord Jesus, prepare our hearts to sit at this table with you, to take and eat and be reminded. God, I pray that no matter where people are along the spectrum of faith and belief, they would hear this beckoning home, this call to remembrance. We trust you to be the faithful one. This is no 50-50 arrangement. It is all you, covenant-keeping God. And that is our great hope. Make much of yourself, Lord Jesus. Amen.